Charlie Brown was right, of course, some philosophies and theologies aren't for everybody, and this apocalyptic theology is probably one of them. None of us like to be threatened, like those billboards that say, do you know where you will go when you die? Or repent, the end is near. What kind of extortion is this? Especially on Consecration Sunday, meant to be a celebration feast and not a terminal ward? Actually, I've seen such a scheme work before. Fear is a great motivator when it comes to getting us to open up our wallets. I knew a man in Atlanta near his death with cancer, not much of a church person at all, never really contributed much, but made a really large contribution to his church near the end of his life, large enough to inspire the preacher at his funeral to tell the congregation about it. I guess he did so in hopes that they would follow suit sooner rather than later. The whole scheme seemed to me a kind of extortion. You better pay up now or suffer the consequences later. Ironically, when the church uses this scheme for getting money for the coming year, we're contradicting the whole truth of it. If, in fact, the end times are near, what do we need money for? Or a church budget, for that matter unless the end times are not as close as we thought, and then we'd better make some contingency plans and get to work. The fact is that Consecration Sunday is about the future and about how we live and work together as a community called Riverside Church. And it is a ritual that we go through based on hope that each of us will be around to pay our commitments and to live out our commitments, and that the church will be around to freely give our ministries to the world. Our gifts are freely given not by threat or guilt, but by gratitude and generosity. So why did I pick this apocalyptic passage today? Well, I didn't. It was picked for me in the lectionary, And every time I see a lectionary text that I don't like, it forces me to have to preach it because it keeps me from preaching only those I favor and it holds me accountable to a truth greater than my own preferences. The story is indeed apocalyptic. Like that preacher man who walked into a bar and after getting everybody's attention, he said, Okay, everybody in here who wants to go to heaven, raise their hands. And everybody did, but one guy. And the preacher man looked at him and said, Sir, what's wrong with you? You don't want to go to heaven? And the man said, Sure, I want to go to heaven, but it looked like you were trying to get up a group to go now. But you see, a group going now is exactly what the early Christians expected to happen after Jesus was raised from the dead. That he would come back almost immediately and finish the job that he started. 
And it left Christians, early Christians, sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for this final return. All the promises would finally become real. The kingdom of heaven would finally break out everywhere. There would be no more suffering. The blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the poor would be blessed. All would be now part of God's kingdom come. But it didn't happen immediately. And in fact, it hasn't happened yet. And the fact that it didn't happen is what caused the crisis rather than the fact that it did. What now? And if not now, when? And maybe not ever. Matthew wrote this gospel with that crisis in mind. And the point of it is to jolt us into a new place of life, out of our complacency and our slumber, in order to stay seated on the very edge of life itself, watching and waiting for that kingdom to come again and again, or however many times it takes. Because for Matthew, this is what faith and hope are all about. It's about trusting in the future that is God's, for God to be the kind of God that God revealed God's self to be in Jesus Christ. And that's why this morning's passage. It's harsh, I know it, and it's meant to be. It's meant to, as I said, jolt us back into living more fully true to ourselves and to God rather than those quiet, slumbering lives of desperation, as Shakespeare said. It's meant to shake us out of our deep sleepwalking and startless awake with the incredible possibility that there is a full life in the presence of God before us. A life that is not infinite, rather short, really, but one that is meant to be lived with urgency and trust that God is God, and we're not. I had a putting lesson recently that seemed a little radical to me. The teacher told me about a different grip, a different posture, a different way of everything. It seemed way excessive, and he gave me some drills to do in the meantime. And so I asked him, why all this, why such excessive uh, 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 drill. Why, why do I have to change everything so much? And he said, well, our theory is that we practice doing something uh, that feels a little over the top, maybe 150%, and it's more than normal because when we get back into the stress of the game, we tend to return to the mean. We go back to what we're comfortable with. So if we push past our comfort zone, then the mean might switch a little bit. I think this is the whole point of this morning's passage. It is meant to push us, to stretch us past our comfort zones to a new place so that when we get back into life, we will have shifted some. And the point is to get us back into the kingdom of heaven life, which is what everything in Matthew is about. The kingdom of heaven, Matthew says, 
33 times. 33 times. No one else says it like Matthew. 33 times from the beginning in the Beatitudes to the end of the whole book culminating in these last three parables, the first of which I read today, about the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like 10, 13-year-old girls who are invited to be acolytes at the big community wedding party. Their job is to light the way for the bride and the groom, and they are given lamps to carry with them, and the lamps are full of oil. Notice, there is no exclusion at this point. All ten are fully invited, and all ten are given the same provision without any relationship to sexuality or color or nationality. They're all ten included. Also remember that this is a wedding party, and every time the Bible talks about a wedding party, it's talking about the grand finale, kingdom of God, when it finally comes to bear, it will be like a wedding feast, a cosmic party of song and dance, of reconnecting to long-lost friends and relatives, of sitting at table and feasting on heavenly delight. Ten girls had planned for weeks about how they were going to do this, so they decided to congregate at one of the girls' houses and to wait for the wedding call. But when the day dragged on and the groom had not yet called them, they began to get antsy. Things were slipping by, and so they decided, okay, well, let's turn this into a slumber party. So they popped some microwave popcorn and watched a couple of chick flicks, and then they went to sleep all over the den floor. At midnight, the groom texted them all, saying, the wedding's on, bring your lights of oil and, lamp and light the way. And it turns out that they'd been burning their lamps all day to get ready for this. So five girls had almost run out of oil, and five girls who had brought extra oil had not. And those who had run out asked those who had if they could borrow some, and those who had said, no, I'm sorry. No way. That's not fair. That's not generous. The fact is that some things cannot be borrowed. Hope and faith and trust cannot be borrowed, which is exactly what this oil is meant to symbolize. They ran off to the hardware store hoping to raise the hardware owner to buy some oil from him, and when they got back, the wedding was in progress, the door was closed, they clambered on the door, the bridegroom, trying to see what the racket was about, came, opened the door, looked at them. They said, may we enter? And he said, I don't know who you are. Slammed the door and their faces turned around. And the passage ends with, stay awake for you know neither the hour nor the day. Seems like a terrible judgment for such a small thing. And the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Five foolish maidens hadn't looked ahead to the possibility that the wedding may be delayed and so they didn't bring oil and now they were shut out of the kingdom of heaven for eternity? It's harsh. Harsh. Especially if we think this parable is about getting into heaven when we die. 
But I think it is more than that. Matthew was talking about the kingdom of heaven, the reality of God that is at hand now, that is breaking in on us even now, like the breaking of the dawn, even though it may still be pitch black, dark outside. The dawn is coming. And Matthew wants us to see that this breaking in kingdom is on us all over the place now, even if not fully yet. What if instead of this parable being about going to heaven at the end of life, it is about finding heaven in the middle of life? Not about what comes when we die, but what is available to us in our lives, about faith and trust and hope, which prepares the way, which illumines the way to the great wedding feast that will encompass us and bring us up in our everyday, ordinary moments. It's at hand, at hand, Jesus said, now. And it may not be clearly revealed amongst all the suffering and hardship but if we, if we stay awake and aware to it, it's now, every moment. In the spirit of disclosure, I admit that I have been guilty most of my life of sleepwalking through it. When I was in seminary, for instance, with two young children under two, with bills to pay, trying to keep up with my grades. I had only one thing in mind, and that was to finish my classes, to get out of seminary, to get a job at a church, and to get on with things. And then I could turn back to being with my family and, and spending time with my kids and being back into the, into the normal uh, race of life. But then wasn't yet, and I, I kept reaching out for it then. And I I did graduate, obviously, and and took a job as an associate pastor at a church in Charlotte. And I was a novice at it and really didn't know what I was doing. And so I had to work really hard at trying to learn how to do this pastoring thing. And, And I kept saying, when I finally get this figured out, then I can turn back to my family and my kids and all the other parts of the feast of life. And then... The next year came and I was given a new challenge and I said the same thing. Then when I get there, I'll turn back. And then I, then I got called to a church in Atlanta and, and I didn't know what I was doing then as much as I didn't know when I was doing the first time. And sooner or later, I said, I'll get back to that place. Every single year and every single rationalization later, I didn't. Until July of 2001, when everything changed. The apocalypse came in the tragic death of my daughter's mother and my wife, Nancy, and all those goals and all those future plans and all that fretting about getting to the next place and all that anxiety about tomorrow was revealed as the great lie that it was. That dark and painful time stopped me in my tracks and I was left only in the moment. Each moment, one day at a time. 
to get through, not thinking about the future. I could only think about the present, how to attend to the girls, how to do my job as best I could in that moment, and how to find something in each day to give us enough strength to get through it. If you've ever been through it, and most of you have, you know the drill. It was the most painful thing I have ever experienced, but also at the same time the most meaningful and the most real. I was the most present in my life than ever, living in the fullness of time, aware of the presence of the kingdom of God and all the thousands of miraculous little graces that surrounded me. Looking back, I wouldn't want that on anybody. But even still, I look back with deep gratitude. Not enough to overcome the loss, but an incredible amount of gratitude. Because it woke me up, at least for a time, it woke me up. And in full disclosure, I am still prone to sleepwalk through life, to get all anxious about controlling the future and to forget about living in the kingdom of God present now. Stay awake, the parable says. Keep your lamps burning for the wedding is at hand and it can happen at any moment. If you think about it, that's so true. It's about the way we notice how the breeze blows or how a raindrop dances lightly on a puddle or the joy-filled and completely unselfconscious way that children are just in their being most of the time. The moments of forgiveness and reconciliation and, rec- and reconnecting that we find when we're not even looking for it. The hope that comes when we think there is no future. The gratitude that motivates us for acts of generosity and love and self-giving. We don't know the day nor the hour, which means it can be any day and any hour, which means it can be every day and every hour. And all we are called to do is to have faith and trust enough to look for it and expect it, to prepare for it and to be aware of it. This is what faith is all about, not about an intellectual concession, not about what I believe to be true. It is about this trust in the future that is even now breaking on us as the kingdom of heaven. For me, at least, one of these God moments happens every year at Riverside, whether we know it or not. And it comes when this congregation walks up to this table and prayerfully and generously puts their commitment cards in the baskets. And whether or not they are commitments of money or time or talent, doesn't matter. It is ultimately a gesture of hope and gratitude And it happens to be a very sacramental moment. Sacramental like coming to the wedding feast. We take our ordinary fruits of our labors, our ordinary hours of the day, 
the ordinary bread and juice of communion and we lift it up and proclaim that they have been made sacred by the sacredness of God just as every moment of the day is if we are awake and aware of it. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the day the Lord has made, and let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.